Um, but like Wade said, my name is Toby. I am the youth pastor at Bay Area Chinese Bible Church. Um, and I've been there since 2007, working at the church and as a pastor since 2009. So it's been a good long while. And it's um, really cool to see uh, all my youth grow up and then serve a, some of them serve alongside with me in ministry. And so, yeah, I'll chat with you guys later on. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 15. Let's get right into God's word. John chapter 15, and we're going to go through verses 12 to 17. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 17. John chapter 12, verse 15, uh, John chapter 12, chapter, oh, sorry, John chapter 15, verse 12 to 17. Sorry if I was confusing there. I'll say it again later on. Oh, you guys are like Bible people, like, not Bible, like, like page Bible. In, in my church, there's a lot of people that are just like scrolling on their Bible app and everything. It's so cool. All right. Well, today I want to talk to you guys about friendship. Uh, I've been so blessed to have many really good friendships in my life, uh, whether it's my day ones from childhood or whether it's new ones that I've made along the way. Um, friendships, as you guys know, are essential to life. One of my uh, bestest friends, his name's Jason, um, in our senior, in our senior yearbook, his, his senior quote was, what are friends for? Well, you tell me how you got this far in life. And I thought about that. I was like, that's true. We need friends to support us in life. We need friends to care for us, to laugh with us, to humor us, to share meals with, to listen to life's struggles, to keep us company when times are especially hard. And I want you guys to stop and think for a moment, though. What do you look for in a friend? If you had to come up with the top three qualities of what you look for, what you want in an ideal friend... What do you think those top three qualities would be? Think about it right now. Now share it with somebody next to you. Go. Top three qualities of what do you look for in a friend? Maybe it's humor. Maybe it's shared joy in food. Maybe it's... Faith, maybe it's political beliefs, I don't know, whatever it is. All right, let me hear from some of you guys, just yell it out. What's something that you look for in a friend? Loyalty, good, what else? Food interest, good, what else? Humor, honesty, what else? Down to earth, chill, relax, something you can get along with, right? I think all these things are, I think, things that I would look for, right? We all have our ideal characteristics of friendship. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's loyalty, loyalty, trustworthiness, same-mindedness. Maybe it's just somebody that we can have a good conversation with, and they're a very good listener. But what would you think if someone came up to you and they said, hey, I want to be friends with you, But, if you want to be friends with me, you have to do everything I say. If you want to be friends with me, you have to do everything I tell you to do. If you don't do that, we cannot be friends. You might hear that, you might, ugh, I don't want to be friends with a person like that. I have to do everything you tell me to do. What would your reaction be? Goodbye. See ya. I'm leaving. I remember growing up as a little boy, I had these, there were these two girls that were annoying to me. 
Their names were Amber and Candace. I'm going to call them out. There's nobody here. Don't worry. Their names were Amber and Candace. And these two girls were like the leaders of their little respective friend groups. They always fought for their way. If they didn't get their way, they would throw a fuss, they would pout, they would cry. If the other girlfriends wouldn't follow them to the kitchen or follow them to the playground, whatever it was, they would get mad and they would just turn on their friends instantly. Amber and Candace were annoying people to be around. It's kind of like Regina George from the movie Mean Girls. Now, if you haven't seen the movie Mean Girls, I'll give you guys a quick recap. There's a main character, her name is Katie, and Katie is a 16-year-old teenager for who all, uh, for all of her life, she was homeschooled. And when I say homeschooled, I mean, I don't mean like cool nowadays homeschool, I mean like really sheltered conservative homeschool. She's never been in a public school setting before, but now Katie has to transfer to a public high school. And she now has to quickly navigate and find friends and figure out which students to become friends with. And that's when this other girl, Regina George, comes in. Regina George is like the most popular girl in school. That's my best Valley girl accent, I'm sorry. She's the bossy leader of this clique, of this group, called... The Plastics. Some of you girls love this movie too much. The Plastics! She was the leader of the plastics. And whatever she said had to be cool with all the other girls. The other girls in the group had to follow her lead. If they didn't do what she wanted them to do, she would get mad, she would get upset. They better do whatever Regina George told them to do. Now, how many of you guys want a friend like Regina George? No hands. Cool. I don't think I would want a friend like Regina George either, right? Earlier I asked you guys, list out attributes that you guys want. Loyalty, humor, same food interests, all those things are good. I doubt any of you guys mentioned that you guys want a friend who bosses you around, who always tells you what to, what to do, who throws a fuss when they don't get their way. I mean, who would? Who wants a friend who always has to run the show? Who wants a friend who's only satisfied when you do things their way? Right? When we think about friendship, we think about commonality and fun, mutual interest. We don't think of hierarchy and commands and subordination and authority. But this idea of friend, or this idea of friendship where you can only be my friend if you obey everything I tell you to do, Believe it or not, is what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15. In today's verses, Jesus says, if you want to be my friend, you can, but if you do, you must do everything I ask of you. So let's look at John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. And if you are able to stand, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17 says this. Is it up there? Oh, it is. Cool. This is what the word of God says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Key verse, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruits should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Why don't you guys have a seat? It seems strange to have a friend that tells you what to do all the time. And yet that's what Jesus does here. Now let me give you a little bit of context to this passage though. From John chapter 13 to 17, we get this inside look into what happens on this fateful Thursday night. The evening is Thursday. It is now nighttime. And it is the night before Jesus is about to be arrested and tried and placed on a cross. That night before he's about to be arrested, he spent the entire night, the entire evening, with his precious disciples in an upper room. All 12 of the disciples were there in the beginning. And now in chapter 15, the meal is done. Judas, who was to betray Jesus, he's now gone. So now they're down to 11 disciples. And in the middle of what some people call Jesus' farewell discourse, his his farewell conversation with his disciples, Jesus has this very important, or has a lot of important things to say to his dear friends. Because after all, it's the last night. It's Thursday night. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows that he's no longer going to be with his disciples for much longer. And so these are essentially his last words. If you knew you were going to die, I'd assume your last words would be something very, very important and deep and meaningful and heartfelt. And that's what Jesus has been doing this Thursday night. All night long, he's been giving these promises, these commands. He's been making amazing claims to his disciples. He told them during dinner, hey, one of you guys, you're going to turn on me, man. You're going to betray me. Another one of you guys, you're going to deny me. He tells his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He tells his disciples, get this, one day you guys are going to do greater works than me. He tells them, yes, I've been with you for the last three years, but you know what? Very soon, I'm going to leave you. And where I go, you cannot follow me. But don't worry, I'm going to provide you a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be your helper. And as he's blowing the minds of his disciples with all these promises and all these claims, it's in the middle of all this that he says one of the most intriguing things in our passage today. If you do everything I command you to do, then we can be friends. If you do everything I command you to do, then you can be my friend. How in the world could a friend say such a thing? Why would a friend say such a thing? Well, this only makes sense when you understand that the focus of this entire Thursday night has been on the theme of love. The theme that has dominated that Thursday night, especially, I mean, throughout Jesus' life, it's all love, but especially that Thursday night, in that upper room, everything Jesus has been saying has been dominated by a theme of love. 
Every act that Jesus performed that night has been an act of love. And all this is going to culminate into the ultimate act of love the next day, the ultimate showing of love on the cross. But even before the cross, Jesus was already showing and proving his love from the very moment they stepped into the upper room. Turn with me to John chapter 13, verse 1. From the very moment they stepped into the upper room in John chapter 13, where this whole conversation starts, it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The very first verse in the upper room. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the mass. There's this theme of love. Further down, in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, we see love as the main feature. Next chapter over, John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest and reveal myself to him. John chapter 14, verse 23 and 24, keep going. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Then we get to John chapter 15. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. What is my point? This is a night. This is an evening of love. This is an evening of love. And we shouldn't be surprised though, right? Because after all, Jesus knew he was going to leave them. These were his last words. These words are typically, some of these last words are very, very important. And so if there's one message Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples this night, starting from verse chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17, it's this theme, this is called a message to love. Love is behind all of Jesus' promises even the one that I promise you I'm going to leave you guys, that was still motivated by love. Love is behind all of his commands. Love was there when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And love reaches a very, very, very high point in our passage today. Look back at verses 12 to 13. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 13. This is my commandment. What is it? That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. When Jesus commands his disciples to love one another, he's calling them to this unique love. This is a love that is selfless. This is a love that is sacrificial. This is a love that denies one's own desires. This is a love that takes no regard for one's own well-being, but a solely focus on the well-being of other people. And this love, Jesus says, is the greatest form of love. Greater love has no one than this than what? 
And he laid down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. I used this passage one time as a devotional for my youth worship team. A couple times a month, our church, we have a separate youth service, separate from the adults. And we, I have uh, several middle school, high school students that, that help me out on the worship team. And, and bef- when we were practicing on a Saturday morning, I gathered the group together before we started playing any music or anything. And as we sat down in a circle, and I read this passage to them. And I said to my crew, I said, um, look around the circle right now. And they kind of, their eyes went around. And I said, would any of you guys die for each other right here? And it was like crickets. Then I look at two of them especially, Titus and Eunice, their brothers and sisters. And I looked at them and I was like, you two, if anyone's going to die for each other, it should be you two. You guys are siblings. And they're like, nope. Let them die. And I was like, yo, that is harsh. I was like, you can't sacrifice for your own blood? Not willing to die for one another? What kind of friend would die for another friend? Let me tell you guys about a girl named Rebecca Townsend. Rebecca Townsend lived in Brookfield, Connecticut. When she was a sophomore in high school, her teacher gave her a project, and that project was to write a letter to her future self. So she did. Rebecca Townsend wrote a letter to her future self. I think it was a five-year project kind of thing. And in that letter, she wrote out a short list of things she wanted to do before she died. She said, one, I want to go to Spain. Two, I want to kiss in the rain. And three, I want to save someone's life. Well, before she graduated high school, she was able to accomplish two out of those three things. Her family took a trip to Spain. And when she was, I think, a senior in high school, she had a cute boyfriend who did kiss her in the rain. Well, a little little bit after graduation on a July 4th weekend, her and her friend went to go watch the local fireworks. And after the fireworks show was over, she was crossing the street with her friend Ben. Little did Ben know that this car was coming down, out of con- coming down the street out of control. Rebecca rushed in and pushed Ben out of the way. And even though he had minor injuries, she had saved his life. Unfortunately, though, Rebecca herself was struck by a truck. And she died just as she fulfilled her third and final wish that was on her bucket list. See, when a friend lays down their life for you, that means something. It's something special. It's something that is a big deal. And John says that is the greatest form of love. That you lay down your life for a friend. Now that's what we have to keep in mind then as we get to verse 14. Look at verse 14 now. Key verse. There's this theme of love. There's no greater love than somebody laying down their life for their friend. And then we get to 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. How in the world, as I asked earlier, how can, in the world could we be friends with someone who just commands us to do things all the time and expects us to do it? 
Well, this only works if it's set on a backdrop of love. It only makes sense when the person to which we are constantly submitting ourselves to is perfect in their knowledge of everything and perfect in love. And that person is who God is. God knows that our obedience to him is what is best for us. Right? If there's no love when Jesus gives this command, if there's no backdrop of love, well then you're just commanding somebody else. Right? It all falls apart. It becomes more like a relationship between a master and a slave. You just tell the slave what to do and they have to go do it. Do whatever I tell you to do, right? That's a master-slave relationship. But look back at the passage because it continues on. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's an imperative. That is a strong word. It's what someone in authority says to their subordinates. Whether it's an army general to a soldier, whether it's a parent to a child, a boss to a worker, a master to a slave. There's always a power, stru- a power structure that is attached Even in this situation here, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our master. When we say someone is Lord, that automatically assumes a position of authority. It automatically assumes a power difference, right? One is higher than the other. So when Jesus commands something, because he is our Lord, because he is our master, it must be followed. But yet... Jesus identifies his disciples both as slave and friend. Move on to verse 15. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The Greek word for servant is doulos, which literally means slave. When a master tells a slave to do something, that slave must obey. And in one sense, we are doulosses. We are slaves to God. He is our Lord. We are his servants. He is our authority. We are in subordination to him. And yet, here, Jesus elevates his disciples' status. He says, I call, you are no longer slaves, but now I call you what? Friend. I call you friend. Now, what's the difference between a slave and a friend? What's the difference between a slave and a friend? Well, in both situations, you could ask a slave or a friend to do a favor for you. You could ask both a slave and a friend to do something. The difference is what? There's a relationship between a friend. There's love that is there. Right? The difference is the love in the person that the person in authority has for the other. If there's no love behind it, then it is just master-slave relationship. The master doesn't care about a slave much. He just wants the task done. But when love is a motivating factor, when there's heart behind it, there's a closer relationship. And that is exactly what Jesus has achieved for us. He changed our relationship status from slave to friend. And as friends, we have greater access to God. As friends, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of him, we are made more aware of God's mindset, right? That's exactly what verse 15 says. Jesus says, for all that I've heard from the Father, for all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known 
to you. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm not holding anything back. All that God has told me, all that he wants me to, to, to tell you guys and give you guys, it's yours. I'm not holding anything back from you. Everything I've heard from dad, I've passed on to you. Because you are not just a slave, you're a friend. Slaves back in the Bible, I know it's easy for us nowadays in 2022 to think of slavery as like, oh my gosh. Like slavery, oh, that's a bad thing. Back then, slavery was a working relationship. Yes, there were some slave masters who were oppressive and, and God's like, mm-mm, don't do that. But at the same time, there were also slaves in the Bible where after they were, if they were working with a family, if they were working for especially royalty for a while, they would actually commit to one another. And, I believe, and the, the servant would go to the boss and be like, I want to be your servant for life because you treat me so well. You take care of my family so well. I want to work with you. I want to be in this partnership with you forever. And so, yes, there still is a boss-servant structure that's there. But they've also become friends as well. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you are no longer slaves. Now we're friends. We're friends. Look at John chapter 15, verse 16. Continues on. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. Here we can clearly see the sovereignty of God. I chose you. I appointed you. And I chose you and I appointed you to what? What does the verse say? To go and bear fruit. This connects it back to earlier in verse 5 in John chapter 15, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that what? bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wants his disciples to be fruitful. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to remain and abide in him. He wants us to stay attached to the vine so that we can bear fruit. But he says, as we do that, he says, whatever you ask of the Father, he'll give it to you. Whatever you ask of the Father, He may give it to you. You might be thinking to yourself, wait, is that, is that true? Well, it is if you're friends. Would a master give a slave whatever he asks for? No. It's just, you're my slave. You do the thing, you do the deed, and we're done. That's it. End of contract. But somebody might be more willing to do it if a friend was asking. So the question remains then, how did Jesus take us from being slaves to being friends? How do we go from being slaves to friends? Well, simply this, by trusting in the fact that Christ laid down his life for us. Right Earlier, we said that there's no greater love than this, that someone lays down their life for their friend. And that's exactly what Jesus was about to do within the next 24 hours. He was about to lay down his life for his 11 11 friends in that room with him. Now, I want you guys to think about in real life now, in your own situations. 
Who would be willing to lay down their life for you? There might be many people in this world that are willing to lay down their lives for other people. I think about the military. I think about soldiers. Valiant men and women who, because they love their country, they're willing to put their lives on the line. They're willing to go to war. They're willing to defend our country. Within the U.S. military, there's, there's four or five main branches of the military, right? Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and now Space Force. It sounds so like futuristic, it feels like. But I want to focus on one of them real quick. One of them is the Navy. And within the Navy, there's this elite group of characters called the Navy SEALs. These are like the, the upper echelon of the Navy people, the Navy men and women. And in order to become a Navy SEAL, you have to go through some grueling training. You have to go through a training that is deeply, deeply intense and impactful on your own body. Those that are going through Navy SEAL training, I I read that they take in 7,000 calories minimum per day. And yet they're still losing weight because of just how hard they're pushing their bodies. They get four hours of sleep per week, not per day, per week during that training. Because they want to push them to the limits. They want to make sure that these Navy SEALs, that they're mentally ready for the pressures, for the stuff that's out there that they're going to face. Well, what's interesting when it comes to Navy SEAL training, as tough and as grueling and as much of a grind it is, that at the campus in which they do their training, in the middle of their training campus, there is a tower. I don't know how tall this tower is, but there is a tower that is there. There is a bell at the very top of the tower, and there's a rope that hangs from the bell all the way down to the floor. And if at any point in time that Navy SEAL in training wants to quit and wants to give up, all they have to do is go over to that rope, ring that bell, no questions asked, they're out of the program. Nobody's going to berate them for it, they're just, they're done. Now, why do I talk about this? Well, many of those Navy SEALs in training, they, they, they do, they choose to stay. They volunteer. They sacrifice their bodies. They sacrifice their own lives out on the battlefield. They're willing to lay down their lives for their friends. Very much in the same way that Jesus would. Both soldier and Jesus are willing to lay down their lives for their friends. But there's a very key difference between soldier in training, or soldier, and Jesus. A soldier is like Jesus. Both of them, like I said, are willing to give up their lives, but here's the key difference, guys. A soldier goes into battle hoping to survive. A soldier goes into battle hoping that they come out alive. It's not why Jesus came here to be born on this earth. He was born to die. That's what we're celebrating this month of December. Jesus Christ came, but he knew his whole mission all along was that he would be born to die. That was his goal. Like a soldier, Jesus too was a volunteer, but he never rang that bell. He never took himself off of that cross. He could have said, I don't deserve this. I don't want to take this pain anymore. Angels, get me off of this thing. But he never did. Instead, what did he do? The greatest love that this world has ever known, the greatest love 
that anyone can ever show, he laid down his life for us. While we were yet sinners, he didn't wait for us to become perfect, moral, holy. Right? We're, we, we're Christians because we admit that we are not holy. We are not perfect. It's the only prerequisite to being a Christian is to admit that you're faulty and that you're wrong and that you are a sinner. That's the prerequisite for becoming a Christian. We have to realize our need for someone else to save us. That we are sinners just like the rest of the world. But for those of us who are believers, for those of us who are Christians, we have placed our trust in God's unconditional love for us. Not because we're good people, not performance-based, but it's based upon God's grace. That he loved us in spite of our wrongdoings. And that, my friends is the friend that we all need. That, my friends, is the friend that we all need to become ourselves. So yes, like Regina George, Jesus might ask us to follow everything he tells us to do. But when we understand that that command of, I'll be your friend if you do everything I command, if you do everything I command you to do, that is set on the greatest backdrop of love ever. We are submitting to and obeying a Savior who is perfect in knowledge and perfect in love. Now, what will this look like for us then? How can we lay down our lives for our friends? Is God seriously asking us to radically die to ourselves and live for the sake of other people? I don't know what that might mean for you. It might mean your literal life. It might mean, you know what, instead of splurging on this vacation that we've been wanting for so long, maybe we don't go on that cruise line or this hotel and we scale down a little bit because, you know what, there's a brother and sister at my church who's struggling with their medical bills there's somebody who's struggling that, that, that doesn't have food or, or whatever it may be. As I was sitting here and you guys were singing at first, there was a time when I just stopped singing. I just kind of thought back to like, when have I ever seen this in action? Of brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificing themselves, laying down their lives for the sake of other people. Immediately my mind went back to my church in Portland, Oregon. I lived up in Portland, Oregon for three years. I went to a church called The Well was established by a guy named Eric Knox. And in one of his messages, he was preaching about sacrificing ourselves for other people and how, how the New Testament church like, like sold all their own possessions to provide for the other members in that church. And at the end of his message, he cut it short early, and he was like, well, do it. And I wasn't at the service, but this is what I was told happened. One by one, people in our church started going up to one another, taking out their checkbooks, and asking each other, what need do you have? Hey, what need do you have? At our church, we had a huge mix from very well-off wealthy people, and because we, our church had a homeless ministry, we had homeless people. We had a super wide range of people at our church and one by one, people started sharing what their needs were. Medical bills, electricity bills. Oh, I'm short on this. And people just started giving to one another. In the middle of our service, 
And then I was like, dude, that's it. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. This, this radical love where we as a church, we love one another so much, we're willing to not go on the Disney cruise, we'll go on a carnival cruise because we Right? We don't need to have that five-bedroom house, even though it would be nice to have room converted to office space and whatever. I don't have to have that Tesla. Sorry, sorry, Tesla. I know, I know you guys might be. I, we, don't, we don't have to have the whatever cars. I could get by with the Corolla because you know what? I'm willing to lay down myself for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Right? Now, I don't mean to guilt anybody here. If you guys have nice things, sure, have them. But please understand, as you guys, as, as Sammy prayed earlier here, right? Yes, God has blessed us with stuff, but there are people in the world who don't have a warm meal every day. There are people in the world who are cold in the freezing temperatures that we're about to have soon. And they need warmth and shelter and food and whatever it may be. Jesus said, if we love one another as we are supposed to, if we love one another, then the world will know who, are, who his believers are. Then the world will know who God is if, if we love one another. Are you willing to lay down your life for your friends? Are you willing to love your enemies? What is God calling you this weekend to sacrifice for the sake of the church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, The life that you have called your followers, your disciples to live is this radical, world, community-changing kind of love. And God, I pray for IGC that this will be a church that embraces that kind of love. Not, not, not in a show-off way to the rest of the world, but simply because they want to emulate and imitate the love that you have first shown us through the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you for loving us while we were broken sinners. Thank you for loving us when we were your enemies, when, we were, when, when our sins were ugly and, and, and vile to you. Thank you for loving us when we never deserved it. And it's because you loved us, Lord, that we want to love other people. It's because you sacrifice your son, Jesus Christ, for us, that we want to sacrifice our time, our talents, our treasures for the sake of our brothers and sisters as well. And as your scripture says, Lord, until we do that, unless we do that, the world will never know who you are. So God, please be with this church. Help us wrestle in our hearts. What is it that you have called us to sacrifice and give up? Maybe even it's something this holiday season. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe we, we, we plan to get our husband, our wife, our kids, something super awesome. But maybe you've asked us to scale that down so that we can provide for other people in need and show the world your true heart, your true love for us. Thank you for this time, Lord. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.